Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. If you have a Bible and you'd like to turn with me, we go this evening to Romans chapter 2, the end of chapter 2. We are back in our study of God's signs and seals, or as I actually have it written, our signs and seals. That is to say, he's appointed them for us. Um, Circumcision, the one in view here, but uh, even this is actually for us. We have been circumcised, the apostle says, with the circumcision of Christ, that all that circumcision signified Uh, we have received in its fulfillment, circumcision itself in so many ways, telling us in um, the ancient way about the coming of Christ, as we've considered about the promise of that seed through whom all the families of the earth should be blessed, and the seal of the righteousness of faith that one has in him. Well, let's read together now from Romans chapter 2 at the end of this uh, chapter, breaking into a longer argument, but I'll just read a few verses from the end of 2 and the beginning of 3, starting in verse 28. The Apostle Paul writes, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. What advantage then has the Jew? Or what profit, what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. What if some of them did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true and every man a liar, as it's written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. Well, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that uh, these oracles of God, which ultimately are written for us, on whom the ends of the ages should come, We pray that we also would be instructed in your way, our uh, faith strengthened, uh, these signs and seals of your covenant to us, which we celebrate even this evening, uh, made more clear, more present, more real, more of a blessing as you yourself have intended, confirming our interest in Christ and our communion and union in Jesus, in whom we pray. Amen. In the early church, there was something that uh, people began to wear to worship. It was just a little at first, and then it was more and more, and then it be kind of became a thing, if you like. Um, it was called a chasuble, chasuble, C-H-A-S-U-B-L-E, if you're taking notes, an unusual spelling of that word, chasuble, um, the uh, Latin word as uh, pinula for you Latin students out there who might uh, know that, um, which you wear over your tunic, a pinula. Well, sorry, I'm already in the weeds, aren't I? It, it, it was nothing to look at. Uh, Wikipedia notes, quote, this was originally worn only by slaves, soldiers, and people of low degree. You know who you are. Um, a chasuble or a pinula is just a, a kind of apron with uh, fabric. It goes down the front and back, covers your tunic, ordinary clothes. It's, it's something like a poncho, though not quite as wide. Um, it's uh, what you'd wear over your regular clothes, like an apron or a smock, to keep your clothes clean while you're doing manual work. It's something very much like overalls in our day, or if you had to be outside in bad weather, you'd, you'd put on your chasuble, your pinula. That was just the working-class clothing of the day. Well, Christians knew that in the church they weren't supposed to be any distinctions of class or status or wealth or race, no slave, no free, And the Word of God, even speaking negatively, at least uh, with a negative implication about showy clothes and showy jewelry. So uh, people went to the opposite kind of extreme. They would just uh, wear a chasuble to church, a simple, humble covering 
so that they didn't put on any airs, as they say. Everybody was just started wearing the, the same bib overalls or something, if you like, right? All right, what bib overalls are, you guys? Right, okay. Um, well, uh, that, as I say, became a thing in the Roman Empire, especially um, not so much in other places. But in the Middle Ages, uh, chasubles began to change. In, instead of being an expression of humility in the church, uh, it became a mark of the best Christians in the church. That is, if you were really spiritual, you wore a chasuble. It became a kind of a status symbol. And after a while, instead of making them of the cheapest cloth, as they were used to be made, people made them out of the finest linen and silk. And the priests also, who had gotten in on this earlier, began to wear special chasubles, still to this very day. Gold, silver embroidery, and jewels on silk and linen. And the more expensive and impressive it looked, the more status you had in the church. It became then a clerical thing, and the rest of the people didn't have that clothing anymore. It was only for the elite. And so you see, instead of being something which removed pride and status, eventually it became something that actually promoted pride or status. Instead of removing distinctions, it highlighted them. It's curious how something in the church can work completely against its original purpose. But you know, the signs and the seals of God's covenant have certainly worked out in that very way. Circumcision that we just read about, for instance, was originally given in order to put a division between God's people and the world. And yet, that which was supposed to divide God's people from the world ended up dividing God's people. That is to say, the very first division in the Church of Christ, the first party that was formed, was formed, over, from all things, over circumcision, where we read in the book of Acts that certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. I mean, you read certain passages in the Bible, well, a fair number of passages in the Bible, frankly, and you'd think that if you're circumcised, then you are a person of God, a man or woman of God, uh, in God's covenant, saved, secure, and all these things. And so they, taking a very realistic view of circumcision, said, hey, unless you have it, you don't have all these other blessings and benefits. And that began a bitter controversy, which divided the church and left its mark on nearly every book of the New Testament and formed a permanent split in the church of that day. Of all things to split on, the thing that was supposed to divide God's people from the world ended up dividing them. Baptism, likewise, is appointed to be our entrance into the one body of God's people. And yet you'll know that that very thing that was supposed to uh, divide us from the world and unite us as the people of God was one of the things that divided the church east and west in the great schism. The Orthodox still to this day insisting on a threefold immersion immediately followed by chrismation with oil which, uh, frankly, was the common ancient practice, so history is on their side. Rome, however, practices sprinkling and has the oil of confirmation by a bishop, and it has a whole separate sacrament and a mature age of discipleship dividing what, uh, what the uh, East puts together. Baptism, my point is, one of the things which has been a sticking point dividing the West, and uh, West from East, and not just East from West, even West from West, uh, uh, Anabaptists and Baptists, of course, have disagreed about the baptism of infants. And um, Protestant churches uh, didn't believe that water baptism regenerated infants or anyone else necessarily on the spot, and so has divided Protestants from Catholics. And so, of all the things that have divided us, uh, here it is, baptism. Same thing, of course, happening with the Lord's Supper. Very clearly and explicitly, the Lord's Supper is intended, among other things, to signify and effect our union in Christ. As the Apostle says, we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. In Corinth, 
they were not recognizing or discerning the body, and tragedy befell them, which was intended both to uh, remind them that uh, the uh, union of their congregation in Christ was not to become the cause or occasion of division. Paul says, hey, you're not even eating the Lord's Supper. Everyone's eating his own supper. Uh, He has some very harsh words for them. Uh, That, in other words, uh, of, of all things to to become a kind of a weapon in the hands of the, of the early church here. You know, somebody eating all the bread so that somebody else doesn't have any and goes hungry. Somebody else drinking all the wine and getting drunk. Um, the, the Lord's Supper becoming a, a communion, becoming a cause for division. And not just way back in that one church of Corinth, of course. The Eastern Church was greatly agitated by a controversy over Pado communion in the early Middle Ages, which has, of course, become the standard east, uh, but not west, the western use of unleavened bread became a major cause of the east-west schism uh, in 1054, whole controversy, uh, actually some, some skirmishes over leavened versus unleavened bread. Most Protestant Christians who were burned in the Reformation were burned for denying the Roman teaching on the supper, which they called transubstantiation, even among Protestants at a very early meeting uh, uh, of the Reformation, Luther and Zwingli got together to see if they could uh, unite together. In fact, they agreed on every major point proposed. The only point that divided them was their doctrine of the Lord's Supper. Heated words, and you might have heard how that meeting at last ended. Luther wouldn't even shake Zwingli's hand and said that he had another spirit, by which he meant not the Holy Spirit. Henceforth, Lutherans were separate from other Reformed churches. Why? Communion. I mean, division. Well, you know, if you murdered somebody with a cross, you took a cross and you plunged it into somebody's heart. You say, well, that'd be a terrible thing, but at least you would be using an instrument of death to cause death. Here's a meal of communion that actually is being used for division, or worse. Um, The apostle has very strong language in his letter to the Corinthians. Now, in giving such instructions to you, I don't praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. When you come together in one place, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. Whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. And he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep, by which he means, of course, death. And if anyone's hungry, he says, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. Well, the problems that we have seen in the church are hardly a new problem right from the very beginning, 1 Corinthians, the earliest of Paul's letters, say Galatians, uh, we find the church convulsing over this very thing. Uh, Galatians, this big controversy over the sign and seal of circumcision. 1 Corinthians, next letter, convulsing over the sign and seal of communion. It's a tragic development that the signs and seals of God's covenant have always been a cause for division. Why do we have such division? Well, part of the problem is we simply don't know what to expect. That is to say, um, what, what are these things supposed to be doing for us? What are they supposed to be giving for us? Many of you say, yes, I'd really like to know that. When we come to the Lord's table, um, well, let's start with baptism. When we're baptized, are we supposed to feel different? What is supposed to change as we come to the, ba- the waters of baptism? You know, uh, in the ancient church, there were a few famous, very widely circulated testimonies about people who, um, at the very moment they were baptized, they received a great experience of spiritual life and power. In other words, baptismal regeneration was not merely the theology, but the expectation, if not the experience, of many. 
and, and people came to those waters expecting to be hit by a bolt of lightning, or at least, you know, to be charged up, right? Baptism in the early church then became a far richer experience than it is today, even uh, culturally, psychologically, and sensually. Um, large fonts were cut into the ground, and sometimes with black floors, sometimes uh, actually, usually tomb-like in shape, some very explicitly shaped like coffins. Um, the idea is very symbolically, you were going to be buried with Christ in baptism, as Paul wrote. Uh, people were often baptized naked, as Cyril of Jerusalem explained, that they might imitate Christ, who hung naked on the cross. When he died, he was naked, and so it is that when we are baptized, we too are naked. Well, uh, we won't be doing that. There uh, was a season of fasting that developed preceding baptism. There was a super high spiritual pitch that you were to come to, uh, that included actually not only the one being baptized, but other, the, the church also fasting. And so there would be then certain days, typical, typically Easter, where there'd be this uh, long preparation of fast then, as it later developed, in combination with baptism. In uh, some places, the newly baptized were given a bit of honey and milk to taste after baptism, symbolic of them now entering the promised land, and oil immediately being put on them, uh, symbolic of the Holy Spirit that has now come to dwell in them through baptism. Uh, there then began, uh, there also began several months of preparation of uh, catechism. I, I, could, I could go on. Uh, these things were built up and up and up, higher and higher and higher rose the expectation. This practice developed over here, this over there. The people on this side said, this is really the way that you need to do it. This is, people said, oh, no, that's not the way. The apostles said to do it this way. And other people said, no, they said to do it this way. It became quite a big deal. Well, whew, um, all this a very far cry, by the way, you notice, of the apostles' practice of baptizing people in the most ordinary circumstances um, right away at the start of their discipleship. No year-long catechumens here. Uh, Paul tells the good news to the Philippian jailer and his household in the middle of the night, and right then and there, the household is baptized. Uh, That's the way the apostles did it. Um, Not a big buildup, not a lot of expectation. This is the first step in your journey to Christ. You are committing to Christ. Christ is committing to you. You're baptized right then and there. Just a few centuries later, people like the Emperor Constantine waited till the end of their life to be baptized because so much was riding on it. Paul, for his part, said, uh, yeah, I baptized so-and-so and so-and-so. I don't even remember if I baptized anymore, but Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And perhaps their emphasis should change our perspective on what we should expect and how much we should emphasize it in the Christian faith. What are we to be getting at the Lord's Supper? How is it supposed to be supporting our spiritual life or enhancing our experience or doing something for us? Uh, The Bible says the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ, the bread that we break? Is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Well, what does this mean? Um, You'll know that has been the subject of very wide-scale division, but especially, my emphasis tonight, confusion. John Calvin wrote, for instance, if anybody should ask me how this communion takes place, I am not ashamed to confess that it's a secret too lofty either for my mind to comprehend or my words to declare and to speak more plainly, I'd rather experience it than understand it. Well, all right. Um, even allowing for uh, Calvin's humility there, what should we be experiencing? We're coming to the table tonight. What is to be our experience? What are we to expect from these signs and seals of God's new covenant that we enjoy? Well, I say these things have become the occasions for division because there is so much confusion and, frankly, in uh, his words, so much mystery. 
there is much that we don't know. Now, taking again the example of the Lord's Supper, there are, in fact, very few references to it in the Bible. Of course, we have its institution given in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And uh, in almost identical words, we have that uh, discussion in 1 Corinthians I alluded to. And beyond that, we have a few scattered references or allusions, some of which are, several of which are disputed. But in any case, they are allusions or references and not the clearer passages. And otherwise, we are relying on some inferences from other passages, from other things like circumcision, where we began. Uh, very, very little biblical data, very, very little biblical data on this matter explicitly given. And I think also right away that should tell us something. Some churches have put the Lord's Supper at the center of their life and liturgy and give the impression that it is the focus of our Christianity. And the expectations are exceedingly high. I think that we need to have our faith in biblical balance and proportion. But the Lord's Supper is clearly not at the heart of our Christian life and discipleship and worship or experience. It has its importance, yes. I certainly don't want to downplay its significance, the signs and seals of the new covenant. But surely in the Bible, preaching and prayer are far, far, far more emphasized, are they not? And as I hope to show you this evening, these things being the word made visible, confirming that gospel and personalizing it, signing and sealing it to you, that is the role they play. So not that there's a a few verses over here and all this stuff about the gospel. Um, They they are connected together, but let's keep it in biblical balance. I am not trying to marginalize the Lord's Supper or baptism. I am simply trying to offer this corrective to an overly sacramental emphasis foreign to the apostolic tradition that causes division in the church and has promoted much confusion over very little data uh, when we need to be clear if we are to be united. Although I have mentioned many divisive doctrines already by way of passing, I am intentionally seeking not to be divisive in this series, but to focus on the important things that I hope everyone will agree on and that will unite, as these things are intended to do, the people of God. So uh, sorry for... uh, giving everybody a black eye at some point here. Um, my, my point in all this is that we have division in part because we have so much confusion. And practically speaking, what are we to expect or experience? That's what I'm concentrating on in this series of our signs and seals. Well, after such a very long introduction, I'd like to have some important points for you today in order to demystify, clear up some things about the Lord's Supper, which we're about to enjoy. I've had to divide my sermon in half. It was already getting very long, and so I cut it in half, and already it's still long. So, uh, no, no, some of you are not laughing at that. It's, uh, oh no. Um, but I, 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 my, my goal is uh, to say, well, if, if, the, if the mystery just makes us wonder anxiously, what am I supposed to be experiencing or, or doing or receiving? And uh, if the ignorance is the cause of division, well, how much can we get very clear that uh, would unite us all together? I like to do that by explaining five words that we use to describe what's before us this evening. Five words, and I'll start uh, with the first is sacrament. Sacrament. The baptism and the Lord's Supper have historically uh, in the West, been called sacraments. You might know that uh, in the East, they are called mysteries. Part of that is Latin versus Greek. Um, the Latin word sacramentum 
uh, was used a couple of times, a few times, I should say, uh, to translate the Greek word mysterion, um, mystery. Uh, and so it's actually kind of the same word, east and west, sacrament or mystery. Maybe you've heard it explained that the Latin word sacramentum meant the oath taken by a Roman soldier, uh, which it was. Um, one or two other uh, ways in which that word was in some common use at the time. But it's often explained that on that basis, since it was used as an oath by a Roman soldier, that uh, on this basis, the Lord's Supper should be viewed as an oath that we are taking to Christ. Well, um, I, I think it's true that we are renewing our covenant with the Lord, given those institution words about being the blood of the covenant, which we are taking to ourselves. I think that there is something to that. But the word sacramentum is that uh, um, a Latin word, and the meaning of how it was used in Rome shouldn't be read back into the Greek New Testament. Okay? Um, so if you've heard that explanation, uh, realize that's taking the translation of a word and explaining the translation. The, the Latin word translates the Greek word mystery. And in Paul's discussion of marriage, for instance, in his letter to the Ephesians, he writes that the husband and wife become one flesh and says, hey, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. For some unknown reason, there and a couple other places, the Latin translation of the Bible uses sacramentum. This is a great mystery translated. This is a great sacrament. Not clear why that word was used there and not other places, but in any case, the word sacrament in the West became the word identified with mystery. Um, the Scottish minister Robert Bruce published a famous sermon series, still in print, Christian Focus, under the title, The Mystery of the Lord's Supper. The Mystery of the Lord's Supper. Why, why mystery? Um, sacrament, mystery. Same word, right? And even to say that, sacrament, mystery, highlights this mysterious nature, which is exactly what I'm after to try, trying to shake off today, to demystify things as much as possible. There are some things that need to be demystified. And so I have no principled objection to using the word sacrament as a theological word. I think we're generally stuck with it in the West. I uh, just want us to recognize that the word does have limited value in its etymology and helping us understand what's going on. Even so far as it translates the word mystery, it, it brings mystical connotations that are simply not part of the biblical language. So that's the word. We can use it as long as we understand it's a theological word and don't get too mystical about it. Uh, Eucharist is the second word. I'd like to mention a biblical, a biblical word that is much more helpful and is in common use in many parts of the church, Eucharist. We read that when Jesus took the bread, he gave thanks and broke it and said to them, this is my body, it's given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That verb, give thanks, is the verb Eucharisto in Greek. It's uh, not recognized or appreciated as it ought to be, but the Lord's Supper is an occasion for giving thanks. It's not just that we are thankful for some bread that the Lord gave us, but when we also, when the Lord gave thanks, when we, in his name, give thanks, we also are saying, thank you, Lord. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you have so loved us. Thank you that you sent him. Thank you for his broken body. Thank you for his death that he died for us on Calvary's hill. We thank you for Jesus. I say it not often recognized or appreciated, even though we say it every week, but uh, Eucharist, although while sounding a little mysterious, is just the word giving thanks. And uh, so we come to the Eucharist. We come to the Thanksgiving tonight, and we do thank the Lord for Jesus. So, Eucharist. Second, um, remembrance. It's, uh, sorry, it's the third. Remembrance. Sacrament, Eucharist, remembrance. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. This is to be a constant reminder to the whole church of the gospel, that the Lord particularly, who came for us, has died and has risen from the dead, and we await his return, remembering that 
We will not drink of this fruit of the vine until we drink it with him in his father's kingdom. Well, anyway, just as Passover was specifically appointed, in part, to remind the people of how God had delivered them, lest they forget, and to have them look to the greater deliverance of that feast prophesied in Messiah's day, when the great feast would be spread and his kingdom enjoyed, so God wanted the people not to forget and appointed a feast for them. Well, God has appointed this supper, in part, as a remembrance, lest we forget. We need to have it before us uh, regularly so that these things are kept in our minds. Of course, the remembrance that he died for our sins is also to bring us a number of other things. As we remember that he died for us, that makes it a time of repentance, a time of sorrow that Christ died for such a worm as I, a time of celebration that he has died to take away our sins, a time of devotion as we renew our love for him, that we who have been forgiven much should love much, and devotion to each other, a time of renewing the covenant and remembering that uh, he has covenanted with us at our baptism to be our guide forever. So we remember our hope. We remember all these things. And uh, this remembrance or commemoration should be an important part. So uh, biblical words, sacrament, well, a Latin biblical word, but we'll include this biblical word, thanksgiving, as it is, commemoration, <coughs> ordinance, the fourth one, that uh, preferred in some quarters rather than sacrament, uh, but ordinance, that is to say, Jesus gave a command, do this in remembrance of me. Jesus gave a command. Um, much very much in some quarters, is made of the sin of communing unworthily. Little or nothing is said of the sin of not communing at all. Jesus gave a command, and that command is to be observed. I worry again at the spiritual state of many large modern churches where the Lord's Supper is never a part of their worship. Jesus gave an ordinance. He gave a command to be obeyed. He commands us to come. He commands us how we should come. Uh, much more to say on this matter, but uh, with uh, faith, repentance, uh, love, new obedience, our shorter catechism has a nice section on that. The Lord wants us to come. He wants us to reconcile before we come. He's given us a command and told us how to fulfill that command, not just that we should do it, but that we should do it for our good. Um, Speaking about the altar, Jesus said, hey, if you bring your gift to the altar, but then remember, your brother has something against you. Leave your gift before the altar. Go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Um, the altar being another place where you commune or partake or participate. Uh, there's a connection. Uh, simply to say, we shouldn't come with division. We should come with unity. And therefore, the Lord tells us to come in a certain way. The people of Israel were warned not to reject the table of the Lord in their day, saying that it's contemptible or coming half-heartedly by offering maimed and lame sacrifices. And similarly, the Lord's Supper requires spiritual activity from every participant, not just physical activity, but spiritual activity for every participant in order to be fulfilled or obeyed properly. We have certain questions for children this way when they say that they want to come and commune. Well, one of the things we ask them is, why should we come to the Lord's table? There's a number of good reasons, but one basic reason is the Lord has told us to, to, to come, and we want to do what he said. He's also told us how to come, so we ask, how should you come? We're confessing our sins and reconciling and faith, love, repentance, new obedience. Okay, so it's an ordinance, something that we are commanded to do and to do in a certain way and for our good, so it is something to do. Fifth and finally this evening, it's a proclamation a proclamation. The last biblical word we'll consider today is proclamation. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Um, surely in the, the words 
of the gospel that are preached, in the words of institution that we recite every time, in the actions that we do, there's a proclamation. Uh, the preacher proclaims, but the whole church in coming and communing also proclaims that Christ has loved us and given himself for us. Christ has become the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and we are taking him for us. You are also proclaiming. <clears throat> this is uh, something that, uh, as a sign, we've considered before how that's a biblical uh, word, and um, just as uh, other things previously described as signs, we can the, the Lord's Supper, a sign. Uh, signs signify something. It's a visible representation of the gospel, the word made visible, as uh, Robert Bruce again put it, because it is a seal added to the word, it persuades men the better of the same. Let me run that by you one more time. Because it is a seal added to the word, it persuades men the better of the same. If I have a diploma from Virginia Tech on my wall, um, and it looks like I just photocopied it, Mm, yeah, you probably think it's probably a fake, right? Probably no degree from there, right? Uh, if, I have, if I have it uh, here on the parchment paper with the seal and signature, right? That looks very uh, swanky and official. Okay, it persuades us better of the same. Well, in the, in the same way, uh, um, a sign which uh, gives the same thing visibly, a seal which uh, is added to the word is to persuade you the better of the same. Bruce writes, the sacraments then are added to the word to seal up the truth contained in the word and to confirm it more and more in your heart. Then what have you to do? The word is appointed to work belief and the sacrament is appointed to confirm you in this belief. But except you put the truth of this inwardly in your hearts, except you have your hearts as ready as your mouths, think not that anything will avail you. I haven't forgotten all about our text, even though I started there. This is the apostle's contention when he says he's not a Jew who's one outwardly. He's a Jew who's one inwardly. Circumcision is not that of the flesh, ultimately, but that of the heart in the spirit, not as the letter. You get the sign. Well, do you have what it signifies, what it points to? The reality. That's the real thing. You are a Jew? Fine. Do you have the faith of Abraham? Because that's what it is truly to be a Jew. If you don't have that, you don't have anything. Well, what advantage then has the Jew, or what profit is circumcision? Well, much in every way. Chiefly to them are committed the oracles of God. And so this meal helps our faith. The oracles of God are not only visibly represented here, the gospel, but personally sealed to you as those in covenant with the Lord yourselves. And so this meal is given to uh, help our faith. It's a proclamation the word made visible. Um, and I will have to explain this uh, more next time. This is where I had to cut it, cut it off here. But um, uh, there, there are a number of passages which uh, uh, some find troubling that um, uh, will say things like, uh, be baptized for the remission of your sins. Hmm. Baptism now saves you. Things like that. And we think, hmm. Um, uh, what should we actually believe in these matters? We read, uh, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? And we say, hmm, maybe it's uh, doing something very mysterious in a way we don't uh, understand. We could say the very same thing about circumcision. Uh, many texts, I'll bring them to you next week, 
Circumcision is ceremony that initiates us and puts us into God's holy people. Uh, circumcision that signifies an inward reality of the Holy Spirit, illustrating repentance, being born again of the Spirit, of being justified by faith, of a cleansed heart, of our union with Christ, affecting citizenship in Israel and separation from the world, all that and much more. So that to be uncircumcised is virtually the same as being damned in the Bible, the unclean, wicked, uncircumcised. And to be circumcised, sometimes in the Bible, uh, is to uh, be uh, wholly set apart to God, um, in, the, in the covenant and expecting all the good blessings. So it's no wonder that the people had this division. They said, well, look, um, I, I realize that they believe, but you know, until they actually get the thing, they don't possess the reality. And that was an ancient controversy. So when the Bible says that baptism saves us, that uh, the, through communion we are uh, partaking of Christ similarly, how are we to understand these things? Well, I will give you two illustrations, one rather uh, worldly and one more biblical. Um, if I, uh, this is the worldly one first here. If I wrote you a check for $100 and gave it to you, um, I could say I've given you $100, right? You get it, you, you take it, and you, you realize it's not actually $100, right? It's a promise, um, and it, you believe that I'm good for it. You take it to the bank on the date uh, when they're open, and they will give you the cash, um, the uh, uh, check is viewed in the law as just as good as the real thing, assuming that uh, you're able to get the reality when the bank opens, right? Okay. So, uh, in a similar way, we are to understand how these uh, sacraments work. The, that's the worldly illustration. I hope it will probably help some of you. The biblical illustration is the Word. The, the Word made visible. Baptism saves you. Um, some people don't, don't like that uh, language. Does the word save you? Peter says, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save you. Does the word save you? Well, of course you say. Um, yes. Really, the word? Is it like magic words? Is it mystical words? Do I say words and does that save you? Well, okay. What you mean is when you receive these things in faith and the Spirit uniting us to Christ by that faith is by which we are joined to Christ in union with him and are saved. 